0: Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. When Secretary Albright wrote her memoirs, which I strongly recommend that you read, and they're entitled Madam Secretary, she explains in the introduction, or in the preface, that she had read a number of memoirs of secretaries of state, and she didn't say she found them dull. She's far too good a diplomat to say that. But she said there was a certain gravity of style. Uh, I would have said ponderousness, but again. And she said she very deliberately chose to write her memoirs in a an accessible, open way including lots of non ponderous details details about uh... the details of trips and of travel and how she felt on meeting particular uh, leaders she did this very deliberately to ensure that it would reach a wide audience and that she would be perceived not simply as the great secretary of state she was but as a human being if Shirley Tillman wrote her memoirs, they would not be called Madam President because everyone knows her as Shirley, but they would, I think, very similarly be open and full of interesting details and accessible because the way in which she leads Princeton University is very accessible, precisely as we know her uh, as Shirley. And in thinking about uh the parallels uh, i wondered to myself whether this might be a feature of gendered leadership <laughs> but i de- but i decided rather it was the hallmark of good leadership shirley Tillman. <laughs>
1: Good afternoon. For those of you who have heard Anne Marie uh, introduce me in the past, you will know uh, what I mean when I say I am never quite sure (laughs) what it is that I'm going to hear next. Uh, But it is a a delight to be here this afternoon uh, to join you in the fourth annual Princeton Colloquium on Public and International Affairs because this year we are examining the life and the legacy of Woodrow Wilson, Princeton's 13th president. Of course, Woodrow Wilson was also the 28th president of the United States. Only at Princeton, uh, uh, Madam Secretary, do we put it quite this way. And that has made him a model for all who believe in the importance of integrating the study and the practice of government. As a young professor, Wilson entertained hopes of becoming an Assistant Secretary of State. I love the stir of the world, he said. And in later life as a wartime president, his ambitions were of course dramatically fulfilled. Building bridges between academia and public service has also been the mission of the Woodrow Wilson School. And on these bridges, the traffic flows in both directions students set forth to serve our government, and public officials come to teach or further their education. And so as we mark the 150th anniversary of Wilson's birth and the 75th anniversary of the school that bears his name, it is fitting that we welcome a speaker who is as much at home on the campus of Georgetown University as she is on the seventh floor of the State Department. Madeleine Albright, our nation's 64th Secretary of State, has had a long interest in international affairs. Perhaps because her own life was forever altered by world events. She was born in Czechoslovakia between the wars and with her family was forced to flee. First when Hitler's armies occupied her country in 1939 and then when communists backed by Stalin's Russia seized control in 1948. The United States granted the Albright family political asylum and they became American citizens in 1957. A graduate of Wellesley College, Dr. Albright pursued her international studies at Johns Hopkins and Columbia Universities, focusing on the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. In 1982, she joined the faculty at Georgetown, where she taught in the School of Foreign Service and developed a program to encourage women to enter the male-dominated world of international affairs. Today, she holds an endowed professorship in the practice of diplomacy and is principal of the Albright Group. Political engagement has also been a hallmark of Dr. Albright's life from Capitol Hill where she served as legislative assistant to Senator Edmund Muskie to the Carter White House. During the 1980s, she acted as a foreign policy advisor to the Mondale-Ferraro campaign and headed Michael Dukakis's foreign policy team. In 1992, President Clinton asked her to serve as ambassador to the United Nations and in 1997, she made history as she was sworn in as our nation's first female Secretary of State. In this role she worked, and here I quote her memoirs, those lively memoirs, to build a more integrated, stable and democratic world with increased security for all who respect the interests and rights of others. She successfully pressed for NATO intervention to stop the ethnic bloodshed in Kosovo and labored to find a peaceful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. During her years in office, she spoke out against the dangers of isolationism, bolstered multilateral institutions, and combined the strengths of Wilsonian idealists and geopolitical realists in her search for a flexible and innovative foreign policy. Dr. Albright remains an eloquent and sometimes critical voice in the field of international relations. Her newest book, The Mighty and the Almighty, Reflections on America, God, and World Affairs, will be released next month, and it promises, as always, to be a thoughtful and certainly timely contribution to our understanding of religion's role in international relations. I know I speak for all of us when I say that I am looking forward to hearing her distinctive voice here at Princeton this afternoon. Please join me in giving Madeleine Albright a warm tiger welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. What a great pleasure it is to be here in this beautiful hall at this beautiful university where I actually spent some portion of my youth uh, when it was an all-male school and I was up at Wellesley, so I I, I, I did come down. Madam President, Uh, I must say I kind of like the sound of that, so it's thank you very, very much for your kind introduction and for being here and for everything that you're doing for this magnificent university. It's great that you have this position. Uh, I want to tell you really why I'm so glad to be here, and to start, as a student of foreign policy, I am a devoted admirer of your dean. The best institutions demand leaders who are not only smart and accomplished, but also charismatic. And Anne-Marie Slaughter is an academic all-star, and you should all be very proud, as I know you are, of having her, so Anne-Marie. Second, as a former diplomat, I have the highest regard for quality education in world affairs, so it's really such an honor to join in celebrating the 75th anniversary of this renowned school. And third, as a child of Czechoslovakia, I will always have a warm spot for Woodrow Wilson. Growing up, I revered him, uh, and practically every small town in uh, Czechoslovakia has a Woodrow Wilson railroad station. Uh, Wilson's ideas were too rigid for some, but to the small nations of Central Europe, he was a towering figure, a champion of self-determination and peace. And finally, as an American, I believe deeply in the value of public service. Uh, This is another part of Wilson's legacy and, obviously, of Princeton's. Government is not only uh, the place a young person of talent can make a difference, but it is one place where excellence and the right kind of ambition matter a great deal. We need our best minds and finest people in government. The price of mediocrity is too high. We also need to have a foreign policy that fully reflects America's interests, ideas, and responsibilities. I regret to say that we don't have such a foreign policy today. In fairness, I can see the difficulty of the problems the current administration is facing. I have often said that those who have never held the highest-level jobs in the government don't know how hard it is, while those who retire from such positions forget too quickly. Critics have an obligation to be both objective and constructive, standards I will strive to meet this afternoon. In her own speech here at Princeton last September, Secretary of State Rice outlined the administration's main theme, which is that terrorism is caused by oppression and that the only way to stop it is to transform the Middle East into a showplace of democracy. The Secretary was optimistic, citing the gains she saw being made in Afghanistan, Lebanon, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, among the Palestinians, and in Iraq. At the time, the Secretary's analysis was only somewhat rosier than the reality. But in the months since, the reality has darkened considerably. In Afghanistan, the Taliban is resurgent. In Lebanon, Iran's meddling has increased. In Egypt and Saudi Arabia, democratic progress has stalled. In Palestinian elections, the bigger winner was Hamas, a terrorist group. And in Iraq, despite the selection of a new government, sectarian violence has exploded. These developments have led some to conclude that U.S. support for democracy has been misguided and that we should focus instead on stability. Others say that promoting democracy is fine, but not now, or not here, or not so fast. And such pleas remind me of St. Augustine's famous prayer to become abstinent and celibate, but not quite yet. Um, (Laughter) The latest controversy has revived the oldest and phoniest of academic debates between so-called realists and idealists in foreign policy. The truth is that for any foreign policy to work, it must reflect the world both as it is and as we would like it to be. On a globe this complicated, even the purest of principles must sometimes be diluted. Still, we are kept alive by hope which cold-blooded cynicism can neither inspire nor satisfy. To lead, we must blend practical politics with moral considerations. For unless we're practical, we will spin our idealistic wheels, and unless we're principled, we will drive off in the wrong direction. Now, I have to admit that I'm prejudiced in favor of democracy. I am chair of the National Democratic Institute, which helps to build democratic institutions around the globe. And all my adult life, I have heard people say that this region or that culture or those countries were not ready for democracy. And I've replied by stating my conviction that no country has ever truly been ready for anything else. So I believe the Bush administration deserves credit for promoting democracy. My question is whether it's going about the task in the right way. Now, this afternoon, I would like to explore this topic by making, in honor of Woodrow Wilson and with your indulgence, no less than 14 points. Uh, Number one is that despite current setbacks, it is both right and smart for America to assist those who want our help in establishing and strengthening democratic institutions. Second, We should understand that democracy must grow from within. We can provide information and training, but we cannot create the desire or the discipline to establish a durable basis for democratic rule. Third, we should increase our support for building democracy around the world, including in Iraq. Let me, however, be clear. The invasion of Iraq should not be considered a precedent for anything. The civilian side of that action was botched from the beginning to end, and the unintended consequences will be felt for generations. At the same time, the light amid all the darkness in Iraq is that democracy still has a chance to grow. There is a hunger within each of the major ethnic groups for a system that maintains order, protects rights, and establishes the rule of law. It's surprising, therefore, that the Bush administration is on the verge of abandoning democratic institution building in Iraq. The President's request for funding in this area for all of next year has been reduced to what it would take to support U.S. military operations in Iraq for about six hours. That's to say the least, a gross distortion of priorities. We saw the same pattern in Afghanistan, where the job of replacing the Taliban was barely begun before the President shifted his attention to Saddam Hussein. Promoting democracy is not a seasonal occupation. It demands a permanent commitment. We should think of it as an investment, for the more progress our civilians can make, the fewer sacrifices our military will be required to endure. My fourth point is that democracy building is a team exercise. The United States should be working every day to bolster the pro-democracy programs of the United Nations and of regional organizations such as the OSCE in Europe, the African Union in Africa, and the OAS in our own hemisphere. And in deciding which nations to assist bilaterally, we should give primary consideration to the government's commitment to democracy. Fifth, we should understand that building democracy is a bottom-up, not a top-down proposition. And this would seem elementary, but according to President Bush, America has a calling from beyond the stars to proclaim liberty throughout the world and to all the inhabitants thereof. In the Bible, God gave the same assignment in the same words to Moses. (laughs) Such rhetoric is a distraction. However blessed democracy be, if it is to grow, it must put down roots. Otherwise, it will not survive its first contacts with the rougher edges of human nature. Democracy demands that the strong honor the rights of the weak. It insists that people compete peacefully for power. It gives those who lose elections a second chance. And it's based on the premise that power should come from the people. To those waging a daily battle to survive, such doctrines may seem dangerously naive. It takes time to accept that organizing political parties, developing ideas, forging coalitions and establishing an independent legal system are both possible and meaningful. But this is how democracies are built. Not by thunderbolts raining down from above, but by standing up for democratic institutions. My sixth point is that in assessing democratic gains, free elections, while essential, are not sufficient. Democracy has a deeper purpose than just putting one party in power at the expense of another. That purpose is to create a system in which everyone has a voice on election days and in between. A healthy democracy will offer its citizens the opportunity for free expression, to petition, to organize, to oppose, and to enjoy equal treatment under the law. This last requirement is crucial, because unless democracy protects the rights of the individual and of minorities, it may well curdle into fascism. Elections enable the majority to rule, but unless an array of democratic institutions is in place, true political freedom will remain in jeopardy. Point seven is that democracy must deliver. When I was at the White House recently, I was told by one senior official that the victory of democracy in Iraq is inevitable. The truth is that there is nothing inevitable about the victory of liberty in Iraq or anywhere else. The desire for freedom is not the only desire that that resides in the human heart or stomach. Through history, demagogues have exploited popular needs in order to rouse passions and to enhance their own power. Consider that Latin America today is more democratic than it has ever been, and yet there are 10% more poor people in that region than there were in 1990. Many families feel that democracy is not working because they do not see the benefits in their own lives. And as a result, the consensus in support of open politics and free markets is dissolving, and a new generation of populists is taking center stage. One reason is that there is a link between poverty and the absence of legal protections for the disadvantaged. Today, less than one one out of every three people enjoy such protections, which include the right to own and sell property. Since many people are unable to operate legally— They hold their assets outside the law, and this hurts them and also their countries because it leaves their governments without the tax base required to provide basic services. The theory in Marx is that the poor are exploited by the rich, but often the poor are simply excluded. This causes democratic capitalism to be condemned when, in fact, it has not even been tried because there's nothing democratic about the way capitalism has been practiced. A strong economy, like a strong democracy, is built from the ground up and it cannot be assembled from the crumbs left behind by the rich or from the largesse of a socialist government. It begins to come together when the energy and initiative of the majority are rewarded and the economic ladder becomes long enough to reach the bottom and sturdy enough for all to climb. One of the hats I wear is as the co-chair of a high-level Commission for the Legal Empowerment of the Poor. This is a multinational group of experts that is searching for ways to enable the impoverished to have more property to call their own, more access to credit, and a greater ability to exercise their rights. In combination with other approaches, I hope the Commission, which is co-chaired by Hernando de Soto of Peru, will help democracies to deliver on the promise of freedom. My eighth point is that we must recognize what democracy can and cannot do. Secretary Rice has said that democratizing the Middle East will prevent terror. But last summer's bombings on the London Underground were carried out by British subjects, just as railway attacks in Madrid were conceived by Spanish conspirators. And Timothy McVeigh was an American citizen. Democracy is a form of government. It's not a ticket to some fantasy land where all evil is vanquished and everyone agrees with us. So whenever we talk about transforming the Middle East, we should understand that if Arab democracy develops, it will do so in order to fulfill Arab aspirations. It will not change overnight how Arabs perceive history, nor alter their conceptions of justice and right. It may not spur reconciliation with Israel, nor end the potential for terror. But the development of democratic institutions would still be a step in the right direction if it were to lead to a genuine political debate. There is, after all, a very big difference between a society where opinions are based on what everybody thinks, and one in which citizens begin by saying, this is what I think. Ideologies of hatred will surely not vanish, just as they have not vanished in the West, but they become harder to sustain. My ninth point is that democracy should be inclusive. Some Arab leaders argue that their countries are not ready for freedom, because too many of their citizens would vote for radicals. These warnings grow louder following the recent gains made by Hamas and by parliamentary candidates in Egypt who are associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Indeed, it seems likely that if democracy were to blossom tomorrow, electoral outcomes would be influenced far more by religious authorities than by Arab intellectuals who have been the most vocal advocates of change. In response... Many Arab governments try to ban Islamist groups when the right approach would be to compete with them by offering the public what it really wants, which is effective and honest government. If democracy is to grow in the Middle East, no political party should be excluded out of hand, but every party, even those now in power, should be required to refrain from intimidation, embrace constitutional procedures, and respect minority rights. As for Hamas, it remains a terrorist group. But let us be fair, elections did not create Hamas. Hamas grew because prior Palestinian governments failed to deliver. Now, because of the elections, Hamas will be tested as it has never been before and required to do what it has never done before. This will create pressures on the organizations, including pressure from us, to refrain from violence, and to moderate its policies towards Israel. Democracy did not create Hamas, but it may cause Hamas either to change or to fail. Either outcome would be an improvement over the status quo. Point 10 is that in promoting democracy, we should adopt a global approach. Since 9-11, the administration has focused almost exclusively on regions that it considers to be key battlegrounds in the fight against terror. This is understandable, but also insufficient. Just as U.S. foreign policy cannot be unilateral, neither can it be unidimensional. We cannot expect democracy to gain ground in the Middle East if it's slipping backward in Latin America, Africa, and the former Soviet Union. This is not just a question of geography, it's a question of victory or defeat in the battle of ideas. For decades during the Cold War, the world was split between the free and unfree. And then the Berlin Wall came down and we all felt like dancing. But in recent years, the outlines of a new and less concrete wall have become visible. A loosely organized block of governments has emerged with little in common Except disdain for international norms and resistance to outside pressures. This list is lengthening and already includes such influential countries as China, Russia, Iran, Syria, Sudan, and Venezuela. The leaders of these nations are challenging our belief that human rights are universal and that abuses warrant the world's attention when and wherever they occur. The Bush administration should be pushing back but instead has made matters worse by treating the whole concept of international norms as a conspiracy to tie America down. Our UN ambassador is on record as having said that it is a big mistake to grant any validity to international law. This is directly contrary to more than two centuries of American history. Presidents from both parties have invoked international law countless times, To protect our interests, punish aggressors, settle disputes, and pursue justice. And yet, over the past five years, the U.S. has undermined or ignored global standards on the use of force, the treatment of prisoners, the environment, money laundering, biological weapons, and missile defense, while also trying to sabotage the International Criminal Court. And then last month, The administration decided not even to run for a seat on the new Human Rights Council, an abdication of leadership applauded by every dictator on earth. The administration opposes any restrictions on U.S. options because it sees America as so strong that we gain no benefit from legal protections. But that's not the issue. If we do not recognize international standards, others will ignore them as well. And the result will be a world governed not by the rule of law, but by no rules at all. My next point, number 11, is related to number 10. To support democracy, we must also support those in civil society who have been working to promote democratic norms. In the 1990s, the global network of non-governmental advocacy and aid groups flourished, extending into virtually every corner of every continent. These activists were diverse in their interests and dogged in their tactics. They ask inconvenient questions and demand accountability from those in power. Not surprisingly, this stimulus has generated a response. Insecure and illegitimate leaders have been quick to label NGOs as troublemakers and puppets of the West. Many activists have been harassed or imprisoned and some even killed. Obviously, not every NGO is legitimate, and not every dissident deserves an audience. But America belongs on the side of those determined to exercise their freedoms. We should care about them, speak up for them, and do all we can to protect them. Point 12 is that if we expect to lead the world toward democracy, we must be ourselves true to democratic values. The spectacle of Abu Ghraib, the detentions without charge at Guantanamo, the waffling over torture, and the warrantless surveillance of domestic targets have destroyed this administration's credibility and done great harm to our nation. No region has a longer memory than the Middle East. And I fear that we will be paying a price for our failures of accountability in this region for decades, even centuries to come. My 13th point is that America continues to support democracy. We should do so with some degree of introspection. The president said in last year's inaugural address From the day of our founding, we Americans have proclaimed that every man and woman on this earth has rights and dignity and matchless value. He did not add that for the first 130 years or so, half of those people of matchless value did not have the right to vote. Or that for the first 75 years, millions were held in chains. Or that before the American civilization could be built, another civilization had to be pushed aside. We should always remember that perfect democracy has not yet been invented. None of us have a standing to claim full possession of virtue or truth. And finally, we come to the 14th, and I think the most important point. Our promotion of democracy should revolve around a simple and basic idea that every individual counts and that the fundamental dignity of every human being should be respected. No principle better summarizes what democracy is all about or what America should stand for. No concept rebuts more completely the teachings of terror, the callousness of indiscriminate violence, or the systematic denial of basic human rights. No premise has greater potential to bring the world together across the boundaries of culture, nationality, gender, and creed. And unless this principle is the guiding objective of governments and citizens, democracy will not spread no matter what we do. And if it does become the guiding principle, democracy cannot be stopped no matter what its adversaries might attempt. So in closing, let me say that it is not too early to look ahead and begin to think how the next administration will cope with the world it will inherit. It is reasonable to expect that our new leaders of whichever party will offer a fresh approach to international problems. In many respects, that would be wise. It is vital, however, that they not overreact to the mistakes made in Iraq or to the overheated rhetoric President Bush sometimes uses. America will not restore its reputation by retreating into a shell or by backing away from the promotion of democracy. I hope instead that our new leaders will choose as their model a combination of Wilsonian ideals and enlightened pragmatism best exemplified in the past by President Harry Truman. Truman never asked for a permission slip to defend America. He had the strength to act decisively, but also the wisdom to lead in a way that attracted international support. He saw America as exceptional, not because it was exempt from the rules demanded of others, but because it was determined to create a world in which rules had a real meaning. And like Woodrow Wilson, Truman was resolute in defining and defending American ideals. He said, We believe that all men have a right to equal justice under law. All men have a right to freedom of thought and expression. All men are created equal. Truman's words, with a little updating on gender, still speak to us today, calling us in a new century to a new agenda for action. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm now looking forward to answering your questions, and uh, one of the best parts about no longer being Secretary of State is I can actually
0: answer your questions. <laughs> so, the floor Adler. is open. They're in the center. You can stand up because you'll have to shout. Oh Here, here comes the microphone.
3: Two. Wow. <laughs> Um, You you mentioned Russia as uh, one country that we have to uh, worry about in regards to their uh, parents' slide back into a sort of authoritarianism. Um, And I was wondering um, if you could give your thoughts on were there opportunities that were missed in the past decade and a half um, after the fall of the Soviet Union as far as uh, encouraging as far as the United States could the consolidation of some kind of democracy um, and the free market in that country? Um, And so then... um, After this sort of retrospective, um, where can we go from here? What directions can we take to try to to get it back on the right track as far as democracy is concerned? Uh,
2: Let me say I think that one of the most interesting um, uh, work that has taken place and that has never happened before uh, was how the United States helped in the devolution of its major adversary. That is something novel in uh, international politics and very difficult, frankly, um, because both countries uh, had developed a uh, generations of people who mistrusted each other and uh, motives were questioned and hopes were very high. Uh, I did a survey uh, while I was a professor in 1991, 92, um, throughout Eastern Europe and also in Russia, Ukraine, and Lithuania. And we asked questions about democracy and free markets, and it was very interesting because um, people were all for democracy and they were all for free markets. And when you began to uh, parse the, the questions, for instance, on free market, um, we had a bunch of different indicators, and so we'd say, well, which part of the economy do you think should be privatized? And the only part of the economy that the majority of people thought should be privatized was agriculture. And the plurality of the people who were for privatizing agriculture were young men who lived in cities. Uh, So that was already a problem. When you ask them about various indicators of capitalism, do you believe in banks, do you believe in profits, um, uh, various indicators, people would say no so while they had said yes on capitalism they said no on the indicators and I likened it very much to one of those personality tests where on the first page they ask you if you're an extrovert and you say yes and on the third page they ask you if you like people you say no there is a little bit of a problem so I think in many ways we overestimated what was happening uh, among the Russian people also There was already then, and clearly more so now, Brezhnev nostalgia. Uh, There had been such a stir uh, under Khrushchev and then uh, with Gorbachev that people were totally disoriented and uh, were worried about their social safety net issues. Um, so I think that the internal aspect of this was very difficult. It was very difficult, again, for us to tell them how to do things. And we were very concerned when we were in office about trying to make sure how to change an adversarial relationship into a partnership relationship. uh, There's always an accusation made by the party that is out of power of the party that is in power, which is that you spend too much time dealing with the top leadership and not enough with institutional structures. And President Clinton was accused of spending too much time with Yeltsin, and we are now accusing President Bush of looking into Putin's eyes too deeply. Um, and not thinking enough about the institutional structures. There have been a lot of NGOs that have developed in Russia and I have to tell you they are now under threat. Uh, NDI um, is there and they actually picked up one of our people who was a Russian national saying that he had embezzled funds from the National Democratic Institute, it's just that we had no funds missing. Uh, so it's just an example of this. And. Uh, I am very worried now that we are moving in the opposite direction and that it's going to be very easy to recreate an enemy in Russia, uh, partially because of the energy issue and partially because I think they have interpreted some of President Bush's actions on terrorism to suit themselves in dealing with various dissident groups. I just attended a conference where all of a sudden it was very evident to me with Russians who said that they thought NATO was set up still against them. Uh, They did not want us in their space. Uh, They had very different views. And I said, uh, in response to that, we've gone from an era of mutually assured destruction to an era of mutually assured paranoia. And I think we have to be very careful to continue to work with Russia on democracy and civil society issues, but at the same time be aware that our interests are quite different. And so it's a big challenge uh, to all of us. And you know, I could go on forever about this, but the only thing I can say is as I went through my library and it's all about the Soviet Union, I thought, oh well, this is really an archeological library. Um, but I think that some of the uh, issues that I've studied Uh, are coming back. And I'm very worried, because Putin is not a Democrat of any kind.
4: Madam Albright, uh, thank you for your remarks. Since you are focused on Iraq, so I will ask a question about Iraq. After 9-11, U.S. foreign policy took a very dramatic course of preemption and intervention is and we have seen in Iraq whatever could possibly go wrong has gone wrong and you also suggested in your 14 points that the only hope left is now for the new administration to come and take some practical steps of fresh ideas so first of all do you think in the remaining two and a half years of the current administration do you have any hope that the current policies will have any possibility of change or not and second whatever damage has been done do you think the succeeding presidents after the current one would be able to undo the damage to american standing prestige in the whole world in number of areas like international law diplomacy and democracy that you have mentioned thank you
2: well i have gone out on a limb in my new book saying that Iraq may very well go down in history as the greatest disaster in American foreign policy. I actually believe that it is worse than Vietnam, not in the numbers of people dead, obviously, and the American forces killed or the Vietnamese who died, but in terms of its uh, immediate repercussions and unintended consequences. Uh, Some of it due to location, uh, some of it due to the state of the world. Um, and so I said about Iraq at the time, um, that I thought Iraq was a war of choice, not of necessity. I said I understood why Iraq, why the war, because I had said as many terrible things about Saddam Hussein as President Bush has said, and I actually said them for longer, because I said them for eight years. But I did not understand why now or what next. Um, I felt that there was never a linkage between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, uh, and that we should have kept our eye on the ball on Afghanistan, and that Saddam Hussein was in a box, a strategic box. Uh, and we were already beginning to move towards smart sanctions, because the other sanctions were clearly harming uh, the Iraqi people. And I had gone to a couple of briefings at the Pentagon where I asked about what next, and there were no answers. So it was very evident to me, and I testified to this, that it was not going to go in the right direction. Uh, I think my talk was mostly about democracy, and I think that President Bush and Secretary Rice and others had wanted Iraq to be an example to others about democracy. There are not a lot of countries anywhere, especially in the neighborhood, who would now look at Iraq and say, I would like my country to look just like that. Uh, So that lesson is not there. And then I think there is the very serious problem that at this time, the country that has gained the most out of the Iraq War is Iran. Uh, And that is a consequence, I think, that was not predicted at all and is clearly adding to uh, the difficulty of the situation. I hope very much, and there are indications that the Bush administration is beginning to change course. Uh, I think that our, many of our troops will be coming out. General Casey has said that, uh, and that there is more emphasis on some of the reconstruction efforts because we cannot afford another two and a half years of this mess. That's a diplomatic term of art. And uh, I think that there has to be some change, but I think... In reality, this is going to be very difficult. Uh, I think America's uh, reputation has been seriously damaged, uh, and whoever comes in next will have a very hard time. Uh, The fact that the United States can no longer go to the Human Rights Commission and be critical of X country for torture or whatever uh, it hurts a lot because we were the ones that set down the norms in many ways and so I think it is a huge disaster and that I what I had said it was a war of choice not of necessity but getting it right is a necessity and not a choice the so getting it right is harder and harder I think to achieve I am minimally more hopeful this week than I was last week uh, with the new Prime Minister and the possibility still of some kind of a, um, a government of unity which recognises the regional differences, and I think we have to be supportive of that, and with any luck, that government will ask us to leave.
0: They are on the aisle. Okay, right
2: Um, You spoke about looking internally, and my question to you is, is the United States an accurate model for the world of democracy? And if not, what domestic issues are keeping us from being an accurate model? Well, you know, I have been fairly critical of the United States in this speech and generally, but I still do think it's the most outstanding country in the world. I had a great experience last week. I was uh, was asked to go to Ellis Island. They were um, honoring immigrants like me. And there were four of us that were honored, Tommy Lasorda um, and um, Shelley Lazarus, who heads Ogilvy & Mather as the woman, first woman to head a huge advertising firm, and Frank McCourt, who had written Angela's Ashes. And uh, I'd been to the... Uh, Statue of Liberty many times but I I had not been to Ellis Island we came my father came in as a diplomat so um, seeing it was very moving and then thinking about what it's like for a country such as this one to accept people like me and many others uh, and where I ended up and so I have nothing but the greatest love and admiration for the United States and I do think Uh, In so many ways, it continues to be a model for everything. But some things have gone wrong. Um, I am very worried about the immigration debate. I can't believe that some of the suggestions that are being made are actually being considered. Uh, I think we have to secure our borders, but this country has been hugely enriched by uh, immigrants of all kinds. And so that troubles me. It troubles me that we have become... Uh, more and more protectionist in many ways, and that we're turning our backs on a lot of problems. I have called us the indispensable nation, and I continue to believe that, Uh, because uh, whether you read the Bible or Batman, to whom much uh, much is given, much is expected. And I think the United States has an obligation. We have some problems with our democracy, but we have had many, many elections. We have a functioning system. Uh, we should not be listening to each other. We should not have uh, such a problem with due process, but I still think we're much better than most other places.
0: There in the back, Dale.
5: Uh, topic is Iran. Uh, painting with a very broad brush, uh, the Clinton administration was... Uh, had a somewhat softer touch in the dealing dealing with Iran than either its predecessor or its successor. Um, you quite famously sort of choked out an apology uh, for our history of dealings with Iran that they had been asking for for many years since the revolution and were then greeted with a diplomatic stiff arm. Um, we made a decision not to retaliate for Kobar Towers, uh, in part because of the delay in acquiring proof, as I understand it from the public accounts, and also in the hope that the election of Mohammed Khatami would generate momentum for internal reform. My question is, if you had your administration's time to do over, knowing what you know now, would you be gentler still or more confrontational? in your dealing with dealings with that country knowing what you know today
2: uh... that's a very good question let me just say this is uh... we began uh... when the administration started with this concept of double containment of really containing iran and iraq uh... and being pretty tough on iran as a result of all the history, um, and, um, the role of the Ayatollahs and all that. Khatami was then elected. And, um, I detailed in my book, uh, kind of a diplomatic ballet that went on. Uh, once he had been elected, he gave an interview to Christian Amanpour in which he raised a lot of issues and talked about respect and history, and then I gave the speech you're talking about in response. I won't go through it all, but we went through a number of different steps in hopes that uh, we could uh, show a softer touch. I think the problem was then, and is now, is kind of the damned if you do, damned if you don't. The minute the United States likes somebody is kind of the kiss of death. Um, And the problem also was that I did have in my speech that uh, Iran was still under the influence of unelected officials, and the Ayatollahs did not like that. Uh, It happens to be true, but uh, they did not like it. Um, And what is interesting is they did stiff-arm us. Um, We did, however, move on some uh, exchanges and various issues, and I have since seen a number of Iranian Americans or Iranian, British Iranians and others who believe that Iran made a real mistake in not being more forthcoming uh, to us. The thing that they didn't like, in addition to my Ayatollah thing, was that we said that they had to... um, not think about developing weapons of mass destruction. They had to stop supporting terrorism, and they had to begin to support the Middle East peace process. So there was a a set of hurdles for them to cross before we could have normalized relationships. I actually would not have taken a different stance. I think we were going the right direction. Uh, But I think that as in so many eras, we have not fully understood all the developments within Iran. Now, and this probably won't surprise you, is I think that we actually are in a very difficult and serious box, that this is one of the key issues that we have to deal with, and I think we should uh, have direct talks with Iran. Um, because I am of the belief that you can't accomplish anything if you don't talk to somebody, it is a way to really deliver tough messages. And uh, one of the things that I did just last week, I created a group which by its virtue grows. Uh, it's of the former foreign ministers. Uh, we call ourselves the X-Mens, Madeleine and the X-Mens. Um, and we met two weeks ago. One of them, these X-Mens is going to come and join you, Yoshka Fischer. He co-signed, along with the others, a, an op-ed that we did in which we urged direct talks uh and i think that if one had a lot of time and we were somewhere um there would be an idea for developing some kind of a grand security bargain but it's a complicated issue but you can do nothing i believe if you do not talk to somebody um and and i think we have that's where we were moving and i think we would continue to do that but it's a lot of hypotheticals in
3: that one
0: more question. yeah sure
3: Yes, right here on the aisle. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary Albright. I'm a uh, second-year master's student here at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I'm interested in a similar topic, but the question here is North Korea. And uh, in some ways, the the issue is the same with Iran. And my question is, I believe you're the only sitting secretary of state to have visited Pyongyang uh, as – uh, as the capital of the DPRK, um, and I believe there was quite a bit of optimism when you went, and certainly since then things have changed quite a bit. My question is two-part. One, similar to the last question, is do you think you're going in the right direction even though the North Koreans violated the agree framework? And second, how do you see the North Korea process moving forward given the fact that the six-party talks have, again, seemed to have stalled? And many observers believe that the Bush administration's intent here is simply to uh, the North Koreans until such time as a new administration comes in. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Some of you that were in class heard some of this, but I will repeat it. I, I think when we were in office, we considered North Korea one of the most dangerous places in the world. Uh, we were very worried about a number of uh, actions that they had taken. And in 1998, when they launched a missile that came near Japan, that really uh, was an, an unbelievable time. And we asked for a complete, complete review of our North Korea policy. And it was done. Uh, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry headed that up. And we had a very tough review process. Uh, we thought about the fact that, uh, there really were two options. We could begin again to talk to them. We'd had the problem with them pulling out of the NPT. We had the agreed framework. Um, and, um, and we were very concerned. On the, if I could just backtrack on the agreed framework, uh, they were supposed to give up any idea of nuclear uh, energy, and we were supposed to pr- provide them with reactors and heavy fuel. What happened, I think, is that we, uh, when that agreement was negotiated, uh, there was not enough consideration given to the fact that the reactors were going to be paid for, not just by us, but by the South Koreans and the Japanese, who have democratic systems and were not voting the money for that. And so they were very much delayed, and the North Koreans said, we were not fulfilling our part of the bargain, et cetera. But anyway, they launched the missile. So the option was to try to figure out how to bring them off of that and back into the agreed framework, or to invade... And we did have a lot of discussions with um, um, our military. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been to the DMZ, but it is a really scary place and is definitely still Cold War. And we face each other head to head. And our military said we would win a war with North Korea, but millions of people would die. Uh, But we were very worried about them, so we go down the other path, and we presented the same options to the North Koreans, and they said they didn't want to talk to us. So we started down this path. There were a number of trips back and forth. They came to the United States, uh, Vice Marshal Chung, in order to invite President Clinton to go to North Korea, When you have a dictator, you think that all you have to do is deal with the top. And so we said, you know, actually, you don't just invite the president. The trip has to be prepared a little bit. And uh, so President Clinton said, I want Secretary Albright to go. And they said, I'm not sure who is she, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, And then we didn't have an embassy there, so it was a little hard to prepare the trip. The person that had gone uh, before was Kim Dae-jung, the president of South Korea. And when he debriefed, he said that he'd had very useful talks with Kim Jong-il. And so I had our intelligence, and our intelligence said he was crazy and a pervert. Uh, He's not crazy. Uh, And... So I I had uh, I get there, and we were very unsure about what was going to happen. And so um, I had to go and see the body of his embalmed father and all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden uh, they said that he would see me. And we walk in, we're having a press conference, we're standing side by side, and I look over and I see that we're about the same size. And I knew that I had on high heels, and then I looked and he did too. And, uh, you know, his hair was better. And uh, But we did actually have very, very good discussions. And we were, and I was really very impressed with the fact that he, uh, did not need technical advice when we started talking about missile limits uh, and force dispositions and various things. We then decided there would be follow-on talks in Kuala Lumpur among experts, and we were moving in the right direction. This Vice Marshal Chung and I actually signed an agreement together uh, which had language which would indicate that we had no hostile intent toward each other. And what they wanted when the Bush administration came in was a reiteration of that agreement. Now, I'm not making this up because it's been corroborated. They deliberately decided that they would not do what we had done in North Korea. It was part of ABC Anything But Clinton. And once it had appeared that this was one of our big initiatives, they decided not to do it. And. Many people were confused by the election of 2000. Kim Jong-il was definitely confused by it because he thought that there would be some continuity. Now, I expect, you know, um, arms control agreements are generally made with our enemies, not with our friends. Uh, and what happened was during the Cold War, the Soviets cheated. We took them to a process they thought we cheated. So I believe in having an arms control agreement as a regime, even if they particularly cheated. So I think this has been a disaster because they had some nuclear weapons before. They now have a greater capability. And to bring this full circle, I think the question is what is the message out of Iraq? President Bush declared an axis of evil, Uh, and we talked about Iran and now North Korea. And if I were either um, Amin Ajaad or an Ayatollah or a Kim Jong-il, what I would read out of this is if you don't have nuclear weapons, you get invaded. And if you do have nuclear weapons, you don't get invaded. We did not invade the Soviet Union, Russia, or China, and uh, so we have worked out agreements. And I think that what is happening vis-à-vis North Korea, I now can't decide what's more dangerous anymore. I used to say North Korea was the most dangerous place in the world. I think it continues to be right up there, and uh, I wish I didn't have the dubious honor of being the highest-level American official to meet Kim Jong-il because it goes back to what I said earlier. It is essential to talk with people that you disagree with, and we cannot outsource our Korea policy to the Chinese. The North Koreans want to talk to us. Thank
5: you. Thank you.
2: Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. I think if you are not uh, convinced uh, to run out and buy Madam Secretary Secretary Albright's uh, speech and her responses to questions should show you what a treat lies in store. I will also say her new book, and it's really quite extraordinary that she has has written this new book in such a short time, uh, The Mighty and the Almighty, is actually coming out next week. Uh, So she won't give a plug for her book, but I will. Uh, I I certainly will be uh, running out to get it. Uh, In closing, I want to thank her. I hope you'll come back uh, to Princeton. I have to say one final thing. You, you have seen uh, an extraordinary uh, stateswoman, a professor, uh, a teacher more broadly, and public speaker. Secretary Albright is also a mother. Uh, she has three wonderful daughters. Uh, she actually started her career in public service uh, well into her 40s. Uh, She pursued a Ph.D. while she was uh, raising three young children. She is an extraordinary role model for all of you uh, who are looking forward uh, to careers that balance many different things and remaining wonderful human beings in the process. Thank you.